It's a podcast for a uh, Monday, the uh, first Monday in the uh, month of November. Yours truly, Bob McCown, John Shannon, up there in the top corner. And uh, joining us, well, he needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. No, uh, don't, don't introduce him then. No? No, just say... Well, but there are people that are listening. Well, they'll, as soon as they hear him talk, they'll know who he is. Yeah. Everybody knows who he is. All right, but I was going to introduce him with by by talking about his his uh, his book that he scribbled. It doesn't come with crayons, does it? Your book? Well, this will be the first book you ever buy that doesn't come with crayons. Well, no, you're making the assumption, Burke, that I'm actually going to buy this thing. Well, I'm used Bri to Brian's not giving any away. I haven't received my yeah. copy yet. Brian's not giving any away. So. Let me explain how this works when you write a book. People buy it. That's how that's how you make money off the book. Yeah, that's other people. No, it's Don't not people. It's to... Other people buy it. And your friends, you look after. Don't be afraid to go to Indigo or Chapters and buy it. <laughs> uh, but it would be a, set a dangerous precedent, Brian. <laughs> Very dangerous. Oh. Uh, so I see you uh, You kind of stole um, the, uh, the title of the book. It's called Burke's Law, and then a bunch of babble after that. You know that the one book that I penned was called McCowan's Law. I just, I actually happen to have a copy of it right here so you can see. So, with what brilliance did you come up with the title? I'm curious. The difference between the two books is that mine is a bestseller, but Burke's Law was a television show in the 60s. Look, look at the bottom. National bestseller. They could put that on anything. Now, mine was in the Globe and Mail as a bestseller. Well, I, got, I hate to tell you, but so was mine. Now stop. Anyway, oh, you guys, please. First of all, was a tele was a TV show in the sixties. I vaguely remember it uh, about a lawyer's show, wasn't it? Uh, yep. Yeah, you don't even know, do you? Do you remember who the star was? No. Oh, do you, John? I, I actually I used to. His first name is Gene. That's all I remember. So, Gene. Yep. Well, that's very insightful. Thank you for that. Well, um, you know, I had to get into this conversation somehow. So between you guys patting each other on the back about your national bestsellers. No, 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 no. So, Jeez. Yeah. Did you like, this is your first book, right? So did you like the process of, of doing the book? Yeah, I mean, Stephen Brunt wrote the book and he, right. he polished up, I mean, what would have been a, a terrible read. I think the stories are interesting. I mean, it's 30 years in the business on team side, league side. Uh, I wanted people to feel like they were in my office or on the draft floor. And I think Steven accomplished that. Uh, I think people, it's like I said, in the, in the, the conclusion of the book, I, I want people to enjoy the book. I don't care if they have a different view of me when they're done, but I want them to enjoy the book. They're, it's kind of like a Forrest Gump book where a lot of the stuff that happened in my career, I was right there when it happened. McSorley Brashear, Bertuzzi Moore, you know, CBA, so the collective bargaining agreement. So I think, uh, I think people, I mean, the feedback's been excellent. People enjoy it. Good. John? The, 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 one, question, the one, Bob, to answer your question, did I enjoy the process? Yeah, it makes you look back, makes you reflect on, I think, would I have done things differently? Should I have done things differently? And answer is yes. So I think it was useful. The, the, uh, by the way, the guy's name was Gene Barry, who was the star of Burke's Law. Um, 
the the one thing um, that I think a lot of people forget, Brian, in your world was that you start you really started in the hockey world as an agent, um, and uh, you were you were a precursor to a ton of people that started as agents and ended up becoming managers. And you were a little ahead of the curve on that. Yeah. You know what? In baseball in particular, I think like half a dozen guys have started in the agent business and been successful and crossed over. Uh, on our side, I think the first guy, John, to be truthful, I think it was Dean Lombardi. He had worked for, he had worked for Art Kaminsky and then, he made the jump with San Jose, right, or Minnesota, right before. He I had did. a bit of help. He had a bit of help from his father-in-law, though. Who's his father-in-law? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, Bob Pulford. Bob Pulford. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I, I think the uh, Pete, Pete Chiarelli worked in the agent business and then moved over. A, a bunch of guys did. I think it gives you a real solid background and how the industry works and who the people are and. Like when I, when I switched over to the team side, I knew everybody. There was no acclimation period. I knew every assistant GM, every GM, all the scouts, everybody. So there was no period to acclimatize to it at all. How would you categorize the relationship in a general sense between a front office NHL guy, a GM, or even assistant GM, and an agent? Is there a lot of dislike, distrust, animosity, or not? Yeah, there is. I, I think the, the, the GM, like Harry Sendon and I, Harry hated my guts because we fought on a couple of players, and, and I remember I was hunting with him, and as only Harry Sendon could say, he said, you know, it took me a long time to like you, but I do. <laughs> that was his, as a compliment of sorts, I guess. Um, I think the one thing, if you go back to – GMs who were active when I was an agent, like Lou Nanny, Cliff Fletcher, Bill Torrey, who's passed away. The guys that were active when I represented players, the one thing they liked about me was I was really hard on my players as far as playing hard, being professional, working hard. I was harder on my players than the team teams were, actually. So if a guy had a bad game and he came out, I would just give it to him, say, you you're going to, you know, I remember Gates Orlando, a wonderful guy. I saw him one night play in Rochester in the American League, and he came out, and he knew he had a bad game. And he said, I know, I know. I said, you might as well buy a McDonald's here in, in Rochester. You're going to die here. You're going to retire here. You're going to die here. If that's all the better you can play, you are never going to play in the NHL. And I think the, people the hard appreciated that I was hard on them like that. And, and part of the aspect of that was that you had to – recruit players you had to go and convince them i think that you could you had their best interests in mind it was a little different than when you were a manager when you actually drafted players or traded for players but you had to go and convince players that you had their best interests in mind yeah and i i didn't recruit john but you're right when so coaches would ask me 90 percent of players i got their college coach asked me to talk to them so, like, I had never met Brett Hall when his mom called me, when Joanne Robinson called me. I'd never met Brett Hall. I'd never met uh, Tom Curvers till Mike Surge, who was the coach at Duluth, called me. But then I would go in and I'd make the pitch and say, here's how we do it. Budgets. You have to work hard. You have to dress a certain way. And, and you have to buy into a system where you're going to save money. 
You only spend so much on a car. And so if a player came with me, he was buying into a lifestyle and a commitment that most agents didn't have. I don't think it would work today. I think guys would tell you to get lost. Um, let me just circle back very quickly to um, my point, if I had one. And that is, you know, making that move from being an agent into an NHL front office because of the potential animosity that that may have existed when you were an agent. What difficulties did that manifest once you moved to the other side, if any? Well, I'll tell you, Bob, the difficulty, the number one problem was you were perceived, and, and John will remember this, you were perceived as jumping the queue. <laughs> so these guys, all these former players that were trying to become assistant GMs and got teammates of guys. Yeah. So it, like Harry Sinden was a great minor league player. He, he would have teammates that would want to come with him, and he's the GM of the Boston Bruins, and they'd be, Harry, I played with you back in 1960. We were in uh, St. Paul together. Uh, I need a job. I want to work. And, and that was the biggest thing was when Pat Quinn hired me, there was great resentment among guys who had been working in the scouting department or, or the pro scouting or amateur scouting. And now this American pole vaults over them and becomes the assistant GM of the Vancouver Canucks. That was the biggest resentment. I remember we played in St. Louis my first year and I, I faxed ahead. Remember what a fax machine was? We all did. Oh, yeah. People watch you will laugh. My kids laugh. I still have, I'll show you mine. I have a fax machine here. I still use it. My son says, dad, do you have a pager too? And I'm like, okay. I remember I went to St. Louis. No. And I had faxed ahead that I'd be at the game. We weren't playing there. It was Chicago was playing there. Somebody. So I'd sent Ron Paramos to jam. I'd sent a note. I'll be at the game. Please leave a press pass. I get to the press gate, no press pass. So I wait 10 minutes. I call Susie Matthew, who you both all remember Susie Matthew, wonderful lady. Yeah. She doesn't respond. Then she walks by me and I yell at Susie, where's my press pass? And she ignored me. And it was clear. Ron Caron had said, I'm not letting this guy in the building. So then I just, I said to the security guard, I'm going up on the elevator. You can arrest me if you want. I wanted to make a scene and they want to drag me out of the press box, drag me out of the press box. But I went up and sat there. That happened three times that year. Wow. GM would not leave it. They resented the fact that I had jumped over some of their buddies. That was the biggest resentment. Not that I was an agent. Just a minute. You, you, you said, I want to make a scene. Cause that was the only time in your career you ever made a scene. That was the only time. <laughs> I've tried to I've tried to be a kind of get along with everybody. Oh, <laughs> oh what a what a pile oh. of crap! Hey, listen, we we went Brian and I went eight months without speaking to each other at one point. Eight months, and it was a single phone call. It was a single phone call, and he at the end of it he said, "Lose my number," and it was eight months later. And the good news was it was over a beer, which settles, seems to settle everything with Brian. And then we were okay. But it was eight months because he didn't like the question I asked. You got nothing on me. I think it was uh, three or four years between um, conversations with Burke and I. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know if you remember it. You came. I was doing the business of sports at TSN. And you came in studio and sat with me. And I have no idea what pissed you off. 
It's shocking to me. The Bible it didn't say, matter. Didn't make anybody it mad. It didn't matter what it. <laughs> it doesn't sound like me. <laughs> oh, it sounds exactly like you, and it was you. And some floor guy came rushing up to step between us because you started. You took a step towards me. I don't know what you were going to do, but you were you were madder oh. than hell. Oh. And but uh, fortunately, you have a you're you're clearly you've been concussed a few times, and your memory isn't too good. So you didn't hold it against me for all that long, three or four years. There, the capacity of people in the media to ask stupid questions is unlimited. Well, now that you're in the media, you understand how that works, right? I do. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you about that. Um, John, and I, John, I know, can tell you way more stories than I can, but I can list quite a few guys that have come from playing careers or more specifically from being coaches, general managers, front office executives, and got into the media. And I, I've had the same message for them when they've asked on, on regular occasions. And that basically is, do not use this platform to try and get your next job in as a coach, as a manager, as a whatever. Um, use it to tell the truth. Tell what you believe. But, but hold on, though. You can't do that. You can't do that if you want to go back in. I mean, because you, you, if you, well, if you, you told gotta, the truth, you'll never get back in. Well, okay. If you told but, the truth, you'll never get back in. Right, yeah. Brian? Yeah. Well, maybe. But I don't, I, you know, I've, my opinion has always been if you get into this side of the business, you better give up the other side of the business. If you go back in, you know, a few guys do, um, fine, good for you. But it's going to inhibit the way you react on camera, on screen, on the air. Sure. But I will say this, and it's actually a compliment for Brian, is um, we've never had that conversation. It wouldn't even occur to me to have that conversation. Brian Burke is basically the same on the air as a broadcaster as he was as being on the other side of the mic. And, there, and, and that's, it's a compliment because there are very, very few of those, Berkey. Yeah, so thank you, Bob. But so you know, John, I think you're right. I think someone who who does this job, who works in the media, with an eye toward getting back to a team side, is going to be pretty vanilla because you can't yeah. say what you think. So my my view is very simple. First off, I do not plan on going back to a team. The only job I would consider outside of broadcasting is I really enjoyed working for Gary Bettman. So if there were a league position open at some point, that would interest me in Toronto, not anywhere else. But I don't think that's going to happen because I've been very critical of the National Hockey League since I took this job. I love the National Hockey League, but there's certain aspects I think they've gotten wrong, and I thumped them for it. So to me, if I'm trying to get a job back in hockey, I've picked a pretty funny way to do it because I've been very difficult – very hard on the teams, on draft lottery, things I don't like. And I've called out the mistakes that I think the teams have made in real time. The thing I think, there's two things. I think it's cowardly. If you want to get back with a team, and then all you do is suck up to the different executives and say, oh, this was a great move, this was a great move. I won't do that. That's number one. Number two, I call it out in real time. I think it's really easy in the media to be right about something and say, okay, William Nylander's contract is a problem. I said it that day. I said they just gave their fourth best player $7 million a year. 
They're, now they have to overpay Matthews and Marner. Called it in real time. That was 18 months ago. Now people say, oh, it's too much money tied up in the top four. I called that out in real time. And that's where I think you get in trouble with teams. If you want to go work for a team and you're going to be critical of what they do, good luck. And I'm going to be wait, careful. But wait, so, but with, with your – with the resume that you have in the business and the fact that you were a manager of uh, a few clubs and wow. you, 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 you live, you live in, in, uh, you know, you live in a, a, a hockey hotbed. Uh, how do you not sit there and think I could do a better job than these guys? How, cause, cause I mean, any of us that have had really high profile jobs, and we get fired or we move on. And then 10 years later, you see something fail at that place. You think I could do a better job. How do you not, how do you not, to, how do you not to get that, let that stand in the way? Cause you got to get behind the wheel to do it. I don't want to get behind the wheel. Like what I don't miss, I miss being around the guys. I miss being around the players. I, was, I, I had a couple beers with a player the other night and I said, I miss this part. I do miss this part. Do you miss winning? Do you miss winning? Yeah, but but the lifestyle change I've made is I sleep. I slept in my own bed last night, yeah. and I'm going to sleep there again tonight and tomorrow night. I've gotten rid of the travel, which was a major, major part of my life. And frankly, I would commit a felony to get on a plane right now. But I don't miss constant travel. I, I don't want the lifestyle. I don't want the aggravation. I'm sick of arguing with rich people. I don't, I don't want the aggravation. Like, I like the people I work for at, at Sportsnet. My bosses, I think, are constructive and helpful. And so I like the direction I get. I like the people I work with. So to me, it's a lifestyle thing. So, yeah, do I think I could do it better? Yeah, of course I do with, with lots of teams. But I think the key is if you want to be in broadcasting, there's two ways to do it, in my view. One is you make deals with people. Okay, I'll get information, but I'll leave you alone if you give me information. I, I don't make deals. I'm going to say what I think. If you don't mm. talk to me for six months, that's fine. But I'm going to give my unvarnished, honest opinion every time I'm asked. And that you make enemies that way. Was, was that always your goal? I mean, after, uh, after you thought you would be done as a manager, you said, well, I'm just going to go into broadcasting. Did you know yes. you were going to? Yep. So, so my deal, so 2018, February of 2018, my, my last year with Calgary, and the late, great Ken King and I had made a deal that I would come to Calgary. At the end of each season, we'd analyze it. If I wasn't happy, I could leave. If they weren't happy, they could tell me to leave. And he came into my office in February and said, we think we're good. Brad Trillman is clearly ready to, to operate this job. No training wheels needed. We're good. I said, I'd like to stay because I really loved Calgary. I loved working there. I loved living there. I said, I prefer to stay, but okay. So that's when I started figuring, okay, what's plan B? Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, in our business, as long as you've got time left on your contract, you don't worry about plan B. So plan B now, it's February. I know I'm done in April or whenever we're done plan. So I started the outline for my book, and then I said, okay, what do I want to do? There's only two jobs I want to do. I do not want to work for another team. I've had enough of the travel. I'm 65 years old now, so I'm 63 then. Not going back to a team. Plus, I worked on the West Coast a bunch of times. Like, think of this. Just bang your head, right? 
where's the worst place to live if you're working in pro sports? West Coast. I worked in Vancouver twice. I worked in Anaheim. Worked in Calgary. So every league meeting, every GM meeting, you're flying east, not just with your team. See my kids flying east. So I said I'm done. Write the book, and I'm going to either work for the league or work in broadcasting. The league said we have no interest. So I, I talked to a couple different broadcast partners, and Sportsnet offered me a job, and I, I like the job. I think I'm good at it. I'm working hard. I'm getting better at it, I think. But I, I, I like the lifestyle just as much. With Brian Burke. You said earlier, um, well, you, you, you spoke of your fondness for Gary Bettman. Um, obviously, all three of us know Mr. Bettman to some extent. John worked for him as well. Um, I've had my share of disagreements with, with Gary, as I think most of us have from time to time. But I'm intrigued by your fondness for him and your willingness to go back and work for him again should the right opportunity arise. What's that based on? Well, I, I think people in Canada well, clearly don't understand Gary, but they dislike him. And it was, it started early as, you know, this American taking over our game in Canada. And then yeah. it, it's, it's gone on since then. A basketball guy. He was a basketball guy. And, and it frustrates me because First off, I love the guy. Like, I, I, I love the man. He, he's a brilliant guy. He's a good guy, good family guy. But I think he's single-handedly responsible for where the league has come from when I first got involved, which was, and John, you were involved then too. It was a mom-and-pop business back when I got involved. I remember the end of my first year in Vancouver. We had a meeting to see if we should raise the lower bowl ticket prices from 26 to $27 for the, the best seats in the house. And I remember, like, like honestly, I remember fighting with Richie Sutter and pay, I overpaid him. Like we budgeted 190,000 for his contract. He represented himself, so I gave him 195 and Pat was furious at me. Pat was like, we budgeted 194 and we gave him 195. I said, he's Richie Sutter, I had, I had to pay him. He was representing <laughs> himself, great kid. So that time, well, it was a mom and pop business to where it is now. And right now we're in a pandemic and the business is in the right. sewer. But the fact is Gary grew this game, solidified ownership, got the CBA we needed, got the TV deals we needed. He's brilliant. He's done a fantastic job. The one good thing about this pandemic, and there's very little good about this pandemic. One good thing is I think people have realized now in Canada what Gary's leadership is worth to award a Stanley Cup, to do the bubbles. And this has been a, a this is a David Copperfield thing. This has been magic, what he's done. And now the test will be, can we continue this forward? But he's a brilliant guy. He's a great guy. I love the guy. Is he a listener? <laughs> oh, will yeah. he take counsel? Yep. Yeah. From smart people, not from you. I didn't suggest anything for me. The, the interesting thing. And bite just, me, by the way, Burke. <laughs> the interesting thing about Gary, that from, from my observations, I, I am absolutely, and I, I, it took me to work there to understand it. I, I'm amazed of the loyalty of that senior management group to Gary. It is something you do not see everywhere. Uh, and, and that, to me, is, is absolutely um, uh, fascinating of, of somebody's business style. 
the other thing in 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 all of this is I have been in I haven't been in as many meetings as Brian, but I don't think I've ever been in a meeting with Gary that if he asked a question he didn't know the answer to already. He already knew the answer. It, it was part of a test uh, to make sure that we were on the same page. Uh, and and that to me uh, that to me is is something that uh, will is always a, a big part of of what makes him so successful. I, I still remember the one board of governors meeting I sat in. Brian, I'm not sure if you were there, but we had a small group off to the side at one point. And Jeremy Jacobs uh, was was in our group, and we were sitting there talking. and And he turned and pointed and pointed, you know, thirty feet across the hall to uh, across the room to Gary, and he said, "By the way, boys, that's the smartest guy in the room. Let's make let's make that perfectly clear. He's the smartest guy in the room, and we're just here." Well, when I was at Harvard Law School. I had a professor named Stephen Breyer, who's now on the Supreme Court. And, and Justice Breyer was my antitrust professor. And he actually, we had a winter term course for antitrust and we, had, we called it the marathon. He was appointed to a judgeship. And so we had to go seven days a week for 14 days to finish this course. And so we call it the marathon. So I had a Supreme Court justice as a professor. I think Gary's smarter than he is. Like we, we used to say at the league, they're smart and there's Bettman smart. We'd be in collective bargaining and Gary would be running out ahead of me and, and Bob Goodenow, boy, this is in my book. I'd say to Gary, you gotta slow down. You're going too fast. You're losing Goodenow and you lost me. I wasn't making fun of Bob Goodenow, you lost me. Like he's making these legal arguments and I'm like, I can't keep up. He's a brilliant guy. And when you have the kind of loyalty where A, people stay in those jobs and B, worship the guy, that's leadership. That, that's, a, that's not, you can't manufacture that. You can't buy that. that the, those people in the room swear by this guy and will follow him. It's like the Pied Piper of Hamlin, right? We would all follow this guy anywhere. If Gary mm -hmm. called right now, and said, I need you to be in New York in two hours. I'd say, see you guys, I gotta go to New York. So that's leadership. That, he's a great leader. He's taken our league from real humble, modest origins to where we are now. It's all him. You have um, reached an age and um, we're all three in the same kind of general. Oh, you guys are much older than me. You guys are much older up, than me. Where you, you, well, I don't know what you want. Do you, you, you've told us about, uh, you like the job you're doing now. You would consider going back to the NHL in the right situation, but you don't want to go back to a team. Does retirement enter the picture for you? Or would you go out of your mind, do you think, if you weren't, didn't have somewhere to go every, every day? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, retirement to me is, the day, a day will come when someone will not pay me to work. Right. And then I'll go full time to one of my charities. I can't, I can't sit on a beach. I don't golf. Inactivity has no appeal to me. So no, I can't fathom retirement. I remember when my dad retired and he was so excited and I was like, I can't imagine that. So no, retirement, last resort. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Another book. Um, look, I've had calls periodically. Um, I know it's a little soon for you to even contemplate that. Or have you? Now that the, the, the book is out, you've had some success with it. Could you see yourself doing another one? Uh, maybe. I'll, I'll tell you why I hesitate is I'm sour about some of the stuff that I, I forgot. Like when you do a book, uh-huh. you have to leave out a lot of stuff. And Stephen Brunt, who did a brilliant job writing the book with me, he, he called some stuff. He said, we're going to leave that out. We, 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 target was 300 pages, and we were worried about being too long, being too short. Um, there's some stuff that I wish had been in the first book. And there's all the stuff you forget, you know, like sure. someone told me, Ned Coletti told me, he said, you're going to forget five really important people when you write your book. And I'm like, there's no way I'll forget anyone important to me in my book. Well, I left out Dave Poole and I mentioned him once. Dear friend of mine, was a client of mine, worked for me with the Leafs. We've been friends for 40 years. I mentioned him once in the book. Dana Sinclair was my sports psychologist, went with me 15 years with different mm-hmm. teams, never mentioned her. So I, I would like to rectify that. And there are some stories and people call you and remind you that you left this part out. Of course. And so like, so I've started a, a journal with thoughts for a second book, but it's way too soon for that. I got to see if people like this one first. Did you mention Pat quit enough? <laughs> yeah, I did. And, and, and you, you know, you talked about Gary. I would suspect that uh, other than members of your family, that uh, and you talked about how important Gary was to you, that Pat would be the other pillar in your in your life. Well, there's three: Lou Lamarello, Pat okay. Quinn, Gary Bettman. I, I, I was fortunate. My, my dad was my mentor. I had two older brothers I idolized and still do. Uh, but I was lucky, really lucky, that I came across and had work for and work with three giants. Lou Lamarello, I played for in Providence College. Then I worked for Pat Quinn. And then I worked for Gary Bettman. And they're all, they all taught me so much. And I learned and benefited so much from working with those guys. Amazing. You, you, you did, and you know what I think of Pat. I, I, my, my feelings for Pat and, and, and Sandra and, and the whole family are, are I think documented, um, but you, you, you and Pat are so cut out of the same cloth. Uh, you know, hockey player turned lawyer, turned hockey guy, um, and you know you weren't necessarily neither of you were finesse players uh, when it came to in, in so many ways and so many things. What was it that made it work for you two? Well, I, I mean. I flat out admire and worship Pat Quinn. Like I wanted to be Pat Quinn. Like I say this in the book, 
like what people, what we just said, John, people say to me, well, you're very much like Pat Quinn. That, that makes my month. It mm-hmm. makes my year. Like for someone to say, you remind me of Pat. Like I wanted to be Pat Quinn. Everyone admired Pat. Pat was this big, handsome, gruff Irishman who was brilliant. And, and the term he used to talk about, he stressed all the time, was being fair. He said, you have to be fair to people. He was big on fairness, like with players as a coach. He was fair to everybody. And that's a word that gets lost right now. Like that's a word that I don't owe you to make you rich if you work for me, John, but I owe you to be fair to you. And Pat was big on fairness. That's the biggest lesson I got from him. He's the best listener I ever knew. He, people come in. Like I remember Trevor Linden when I talked to him one time. Pat's puffing on his cigar, and Trevor's talking. And I said to Trevor, "What did what did Pat say?" He said, "I don't know. If Pat said anything. <laughs> I just I just talked for a half hour." So um, I admired Pat. I I loved how he ran the Canucks. Like when he took over the Canucks, we were playing in the old building. We were averaging like ten thousand fans, and then he they went to the finals two years after I left. And Pat just built that team, good trade after good trade, good draft after good draft. And the humility and the modesty he had while doing it, it was so much fun to wor- watch him work and learn in his name. I, I, don't th- I don't think people understand uh, outside, of, maybe outside of Vancouver and Toronto, is the, the influence this guy had on the game in so many levels. I mean, remember, he, he, this was a guy that actually signed a contract to coach in Vancouver well, he was still in Los Angeles because his contract allowed him to do so, even though he got suspended 20 games for it. Uh, but he, he understood how to, he, he understood how to negotiate. He understood how to use uh, the system to his advantage. Yeah. Well, he was, that was a really smart guy, but what I like, he was, he was an innovator. And I talk about this in the book, like, uh, Paul Holm or Bobby Clark will dispute this. I think we were the first team to hire a strength coach, but the Flyers claim they were, so we might have been second. We're the first team to go with a laptop, laptop computer scouting. The old days, scouts filled out a, a written form and mailed it in, and then a secretary would enter it into the computer. We put scouts in the field with laptops. First team to do it. That was Pat. Um, Sleep doctors, like like I laughed when the Canucks talked about having sleep doctors. Pat had sleep doctors back in 1987. We got rid of hazing in 1987. Hazing continued in junior hockey for 20 years after that. At least. We, we eliminated rookie hazing in 1987. Pat was so progressive. Uh, it was just a, a, a joy to work for him. Five years, and it was like, I feel like I got the benefit of 20. You know, the guys you mentioned, Lamorello is um, an intriguing guy. Um, John and I had the great privilege of, I guess, <laughs> being in the loop a little bit because he would talk to us. On no, no. We felt we were in the loop. Lou never well, said anything. No, of course he didn't. But at least he took the call and he was gracious <laughs> enough to come on and, and chat. And he doesn't do that with very many. And um, I don't know how that happened, but it did. Um, before we let you go here. And uh, to tell us a tell us a loose story that maybe we haven't heard. We've that's heard a not few. A, not a, that's not in the book. Yeah, something maybe that's not in the book. Um. So I I had this is not in the book. I'll show you a side of Lou. So I I dated the same girl 
in high school and university, and she dumped me Christmas my senior year. Shocking. Dumped me. And I remember, you know, you're, you're a kid, right? You think you're in love. There's this devastating event, right? Oh, yeah. And so Lou calls me in. And I thought he's going to give me this, say, you gotta, can't let it affect your hockey. You know, you gotta, you're the captain of this team. You and Ronnie Wilson are captains. You, you can't let it affect the team. And Lou called me and he said, you know what? He said, these things are, these things suck. These affairs of the heart are, are difficult. He said, you, you know, just don't, don't take it too hard. You'll be fine. Nothing about the team, just a, a friend saying, hey, it stinks. Getting dumped, it stinks, right? And, and you start to think, this guy has a heart. Lou actually has compassion. He, he is a good human being. But I'll never forget that. I thought, this, this coach is going to give me the pep talk. Mm-hmm. Don't let it affect your play. You know, you, you have a duty to this team. He called me and said, you know what? These kind of things are just terrible. It just sucks. And I remember thinking, what a good guy. Well, 40 years later, how often do you talk to Lou? Not that often. We're not, we're not, Lou's not close to anybody. No. I, I love the guy. I owe him a ton. I really admire him. But we're, Lou is a family guy. You get a peek behind the curtain every once in a while, but we're not that close. Yeah. Uh, how, long, how long are you going to do this for, Brian? How long are you going to be a broadcaster? Hopefully 20 more years. I like it. I like it. I don't want to retire. Here's the key for me is one is I like the work. I'm still around hockey. I'm talking hockey. I got a text from two players while we're talking here. Just let's get together, have a beer or whatever. So I'm around the game, which I love. I love the game. It's given me everything. Second, I, I feel like I, the people I work for, I enjoy and the people I work with, I enjoy. So it, going to work's cool. Like my biggest nightmare, I said this in the book, I told my kids this, my biggest concern professionally my entire career has been to not get a speeding ticket on the way to work. That's how anxious I was to get to work. At 5.30 in the morning in Calgary, driving down the hill, don't get a speeding ticket before you get to Starbucks. Okay, so that's how much I love the job. So same thing here. I really enjoy the work. I think I'm getting better at it. I'm trying to get better at it. Um, and I like it. And I, I haven't made any deals with anyone. So I got people who won't talk to me right now because I'm hammering them on the air and they don't like it. It's too bad. Uh, we wish you good luck with the book. book. It's called Burke's Law. It's available at a uh, fine bookstore near you, wherever you happen to be. And um, it's always fun to chat. It's nice to see you. It hasn't been that long since we uh, got together, but it's been a little while. It's Time for another visit, Berkey. What do you think? Yep. I'll call you later. All right, pal. Good luck with it. And thank you very much for your time this morning. Uh, That's Brian Burke for John Shannon, Bob McCowan. See you next time on the podcast. Bye-bye.